The Silvergate Bank saga is coming to an end with the liquidation. And of course, Elizabeth Warren and friends are taking it as an excuse to once again attack the crypto industry. Coincidentally, not mentioning the failure of Credit Suisse, which is also likely to go bankrupt and has nothing to do with crypto. But I guess that's neither here nor there when you're trying to push a narrative. Also, Grayscale had a great first day in court on Tuesday. The odds now shifting, in many of his opinion, to them actually winning their case against the SEC, who have been consistently dunked on by judges all week. We have a lot to talk about today, and I have three incredible guests. Of course, James, Lucas, and Dave, who have all been here before and need no introduction, so they're not going to get one. Let's go. Let's go. What is up, everybody? I am Scott Melker, also known as the Wolf of All Streets. Before we get started, please subscribe to the channel. And once again, grab your Shiba Inu eating ramen oven mitt and drop it onto the like button. I got that at Epcot Center, but you guys know that by now. It was in Japan, not the real Japan, the Disney version of Japan. So basically a couple hours from my house in Orlando. I hope you guys are all having a wonderful day I think it's pretty clear by now that my favorite days of the week are the ones where I don't have to rattle on by myself and get to bring on really smart people to do all of the hard lifting for me. So I'm going to go ahead and bring them all on right now. I've got Dave, Lucas, and James, of course, who you guys should all be familiar with. And we have a strange unicorn occurrence here so that James and I are not wearing matching black shirts. Actually, three of us are in gray. But strangely, we're seeing a trend change. Dave, myself, and James are all standing while Lucas is sitting. And I was just tweeting about standing desks yesterday. I can't say that I'm, an in, I'm a standing desk influencer, actually. I'm not really in crypto. But I, I'm glad. Lucas, we're going to get you standing up by the next, by the next stream, okay? Is that going to be the next cycle move? Just yeah. like... I'm uh, compelling the bull market by now. I won't sit until the next bull market. <laughs> Go long standing desks. Yeah, yeah. That's right. We're we'll all long standing desks. <laughs> Sorry, guys. I forgot to tell you, I'm actually being paid by the standing desk <laughs> lobby. To, uh, which I don't, I don't, it's not financial advice. So I, that nobody wants to hear my uh, ramblings about standing desks and black t-shirts, but they probably do want to talk about all of the good and bad news that's been happening in the crypto space. I think that we'll start with Silvergate. Uh, Lucas, actually, I want to talk to you because this morning in the newsletter, Into the Block, which are the head of research, you guys uh, once a month now write up a piece for me and you chose Silvergate and GBTC, which are also the two topics basically that we're starting with today. So I would just love your take on what's happening with Silvergate and, of course, whether you think that that's going to be uh, another source of contagion for the crypto industry or if it's just a bank failure. Yeah, Um so another failure of risk management, unfortunately, um, from the information that we have, it seems like they were investing in long duration bonds, but they did so when the rates were, you know, significantly lower. So as rates increased, effectively, those bonds were worth uh, less and less over time. Uh, and it also coincided uh, with the moment that, you know, the FTX uh, fraud started getting unwind, unwound. So uh, therefore, there was also a lot of demand to exit and they were forced sellers of these bonds at lower prices. Uh, and effectively, that led them to become 
uh, what seems insolvent and now they're just liquidating uh, their positions. Um, so yeah, that's Silvergate's one of the largest partners, of course, for uh, crypto exchanges in, in principle. Uh, and so we might see some headaches there with you know institutional money entering crypto becoming uh, more difficult. Uh, but I don't see like contagion in the same way in terms of. Uh, I, I'm correct me if I'm wrong, guys. I don't know if you guys might have a different take, but but yeah, I, I see we, it might have some troubles uh, attracting capital near term, uh, especially at large sizes. Um, but I don't see contagion at least in the same way that we did before. No, it it okay. seems pretty it seems pretty orderly. I mean, this seems like just classic bad bank management. I mean, we could get more hyperbolic about it, but you know, it turns out running a bank isn't just about pushing a button on a spreadsheet. You actually have to know what you're doing. You have to match your assets and liabilities. Clearly, this is a, a you know asset liability mismatch. And also, it's like it's a little bit like a land war in Asia thing. The number one thing about the long bond is you never buy it during a hike cycle. You wait till the hike cycle's over. Like, I don't understand how you end up in this position unless you have a whole lot of people who don't understand core banking running your bank. Yeah, I think that there's some hurdles, but it's not. Uh, so as an operator, it's definitely a bit of friction. But we've been watching this unfold for a couple of weeks and interacting with most of the partners where it's not just, it's not the only bank. It is a big bank for many of the different partners that we have. Uh, I would say by and large, the partners were orderly in how they migrated away from this and no real issues that we've been able to see. And there are some folks that uh, maybe were not as on the ball, but it's not, um, it's not unexpected to see typical financial services folks, which crypto, crypto exchanges are more like her typical crypto financial operations now having multiple op multiple avenues to be able to interact with the customer base. Yeah. So it sounds like everyone's in agreement that this is effectively a banking collapse and not a crypto banking collapse. And it's just an easy narrative because they were the first and only at the time, I guess, to really bank the crypto industry to some degree. It's kind of sad. I've said this before. Obviously, it's business. So Coinbase, Kraken, Circle, etc., all bailed within 24 hours. <laughs> and they had to. But it's sad to me because because Silvergate, I almost said signature in a Freudian slip, Silvergate was there from the very beginning and was the only one willing to sort of take the risk. But that should not be conflated with the crypto industry crashing this bank. Yeah, yeah I, I see this a little bit as like what we've seen in, in other industries like cannabis, any place where you've got a high growth somewhat on the edge of sort of current regulation, current best practices, and then you get the financial system paying attention to them, you end up with some folks get out over their skis. And as these things get, you know, they expand and contract, they sort of breathe. The folks who are most out on the edge are the ones that tend to get beaten up. We've seen this in banking crises, honestly, for hundreds of years. The folks who are out there doing the early lending on the high growth opportunities, whether it's building railroads or real estate in South Florida or crypto, when things turn, if they've managed their risk wrong, they're usually the canary in the coal mine that says, ah, okay, we've got some problems here. This is where the, the, the crossover is. You know, whether it's Silvergate that's this case, whether it's, you know, JP Morgan, who knows where the end of it goes. I agree. I don't see a lot of opportunity for contagion here because usually that's when you've got multiple banks interacting and you end up with sort of cascading liabilities between banks that sort of were underrepresented or undermanaged in terms of risk. At least from what I've seen, I don't see any of that in the Silvergate stuff. No, I mean, even if the entire balance sheet was in, 
even if the entire balance sheet was in Bitcoin and had to be liquidated, it's not a tremendous amount. I mean, the market would take a, a take a little hit, but we it's not like you're trying to dump trillions of dollars on the market. And Silvergate did not have an extensive balance sheet of, of Bitcoin on their balance sheets. They had some customers they were servicing that had exposure in there, uh, which may pose some challenges, but it doesn't seem like it's the major downfall of this operation. I think if they had had Bitcoin on the balance sheet rather rather than these uh, bonds that were bought at sub 1% interest rates, they may have actually been in better shape. <laughs> They'd be in great shape. Because literally nobody in the world is going to buy a bond that's yielding a quarter of what you can just buy from the government directly right now. I mean, it's just not mm-hmm. going to happen. I just want to pull this up really quick because I, I just happened to search it. If ever you feel bad as a retail investor about your decisions, about losing money on FTX, any of these things, these are the people who are going broke, not going broke, but who are losing their money with Silvergate. Vanguard, BlackRock, 6% ownership, Morgan Stanley, Two Sigma, Columbia Management. I mean, you guys may not even know, but until very recently, these people were reinvesting and doubling down on Silvergate to sort of help the bailout, thinking that they were getting it cheap. Right. I mean, this reminds me, it reminds me to some degree of like a bunch of people, I can say speak for Arca, you know, the hedge fund in crypto who are like, we're going to double down on Luna, $24. It's a great buy. Right. I mean, it's a speculation, you know, you can, you you can, you can put your money to work on almost anything if you really want to go out there. (laughs) Yeah. But I mean, this is, this is, this is not like some fly by night operation. They were heavily backed. I mean, BlackRock owned 6% of this bank, Vanguard owned 9% of this bank. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, the 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 ecosystem was trying to create this bridge between TradFi and DeFi. I mean, that was the story for the last couple of years. I think what we're seeing is the unwinding of a lot of those bridges. And it's not just this. It's it's what we're seeing in grayscale. It's what we're seeing out of regulatory environments around the world, frankly, maybe with the exception of Europe. This is the unwinding of that marriage we were trying to ha- make happen. I actually don't think it's the end. I think that it comes back together, but there's no question that this has just created this valley in that journey that I think a lot of us weren't expecting. Yeah, well, the sort of the, the fear is always there, especially in the, the market we're in now. The backdrop is concerned that there may be further downside. Um, this is likely what we saw the sell off in the last couple of days was just a fear of additional contagion. Uh, yeah, I think we're not. I don't think we're going to see major moves down as a result of Silvergate. There may be some other items lurking out there, but risk seems to be to the upside. It's where the max pain is, and people missing out on being long risk assets. Are you Are you concerned about the sort of cascading liquidity problem again? Not so much a contagion perspective, but um, I mean, Nick Carter wrote that piece in in Pirate Wires, I think, earlier this week or last week about you know, choke point 2.0 as sort of a theory for what's going on here with the idea that this is, whether it's nefarious and coordinated or not, the end result is the same, which is, oh, Silvergate goes down. So now somebody else can't do a micro loan to somebody else who's trying to get $10,000 on this. And it creates this cascading crunch of liquidity, which, I mean, I don't think to see that so much as a contagion, but just as a giant brake pedal on the activity. Do you agree with that? Or do you see something else going on here? I think it's a, a slowdown. I mean, if you asked me this at four o'clock when the news posted, I'd say I was a little more concerned, but as all settlements come in, no problem across all channels, you're like, okay, it, there's still risk, but it doesn't look like it's a catastrophic failure or a lockup on, on the flow of funds. Yeah, I would say it would probably slow down the recovery process to a certain extent, as it becomes harder for new money to enter this space. Um, so probably we're going to see like more money rotation from one narrative to another. 
but less, you know, new capital flowing in as it'll be harder for that, at least over the next few months. Hopefully another bank steps in and fills that liquidity eventually, but it'll be hard as, as you mentioned. So then the question becomes, and you kind of just all touched on it, but is this a concerted and coordinated attack by some entity to choke off crypto's access to the banking system or did Silvergate just kind of fuck up? <laughs> I, I'm not a personally a big conspiracy theorist. I tend to, if I can describe something to incompetence, I generally assume that it's incompetence, not malfeasance. I, it also requires you to believe that the regulators talk to each other enough and like each other enough that they'd actually collude to do something like this. Now, you can go back and read what Biden wrote a year ago in his executive order, and you can sort of see the tone of what he wanted to happen. And some of this sort of follows suit in that. There's a lot of protective language in it. There's a lot of cross-coordination between regulators in Biden's language. But I think the idea that somehow this like there's a, a back room somewhere with a bunch of folks smoking cigars where they're saying, ah, you know what we do this week is we take this one down. Like, I, I just don't think that that's actually what happens. I think that there's a lot of misunderstanding among regulators about how any of this stuff works. And what we're seeing is more sort of cascading ignorance and and sort of mismanagement than any kind of conspiracy in my in my opinion yeah, yeah totally agree i mean collusion would imply cooperation which seems to be lacking in most of our lawmakers and yeah. regulatory agencies uh, there there definitely has been pressure and friction from early days of crypto getting access to the banking systems and a lot of hesitancy from the uncertainty but silvergate doesn't seem like they were kneecapped or or, or chopped to be an example out of lucas what do you think just uh, poor, poor banking, or do you think that we could actually have legitimate concerns here about the I, crypto industry effectively becoming unbanked? No, I mean, as, as the information came to light, it seemed pretty clear there was some, at least some mismanagement involved. Um, you can extend conspiracy theories if it extends to the rest of the industry, but in Silvergate's case in particular, uh, there was definitely some bad risk management. So I'm going to go ahead and share tweets. Go ahead, go ahead, James. Sorry, and then I'll do it. You know, interestingly, on this, I'm sorry to cut you off. That um, you know, crypto starts sort of at that unbanked mindset, and so having losing some of these banks it may slow down some of the the flow of capital at the institutional level, but the, the industry is able to move on. And there's there's an argument to be made: complete exile from the banking system may not be horrible, and it may just accelerate further. DeFi or further interactions where we're more peer-to-peer -peer, um, pushing the industry out. I'm not advocating for it, <laughs> definitely not. Uh, but it is, I think that the ethos and sort of the fundamental principles lend itself well to not being reliant on a banking system. Mm -hmm. Oh, the irony of Silvergate unbanking <laughs> themselves. <laughs> right? Um, I agree with you that it's good for the core ethos, but it's also really good to be able to pay your kids school tuition and your mortgage in cash uh, with the money that you made in crypto. So I'm yeah. sort of on the fence on the fence on that one until we live in a world where you can somehow use a stable coin to pay for your everyday expenses or Bitcoin, for that matter, if you chose. I think it's very important, obviously, that we still do have on and off ramps, and that could theoretically be a choke point, whether that's what's happening here or not. But let's look at the political opportunism that came along with this. <laughs> Elizabeth Warren, of course, as the bank of choice for crypto, Silvergate's bank's failure is disappointing, but predictable. I warned of Silvergate's risky, if not illegal activity. Literally, no, you didn't. 
never. People have looked into this. She's never said anything about it. And identified severe due diligence failures. Now customers must be made whole and regulators should step up against crypto risk. Now, listen, like, I guess it's just because it's my feed and it's people that I follow, but the, the amount of like reverse 360 one-handed dunks happening <laughs> on Elizabeth Warren in the comments are incredible. I mean, Mike Dudas, congrats on causing a bank run. You should feel deep pride that your op-eds and letters combined with regulators, cautions to clients of Silvergate led to full-on capital flight. Fortunately, they are dissolving in an orderly manner despite your best efforts to destroy depositor accounts. And there's, here's Nick Tarter. You didn't predict it, right? I mean, uh, what? Do we, but that—that's the thing, right? So I, she's not, she's not. I, I wouldn't say that her comments are indicative of the full political spectrum or what they would agree. But this is what has to worry you, because whether it is a choke point or not, it will be used. I, I tweeted something to the effect yesterday that Silvergate is the exact ammo that they need to more heavily come down on the crypto industry. I didn't believe that because it's true. I don't believe it's because it's true. I believe that because people like her will attempt to utilize this narrative. I, I actually think that they don't need any more ammunition, right? I mean, I think they can just look at the pile of U.S. investors who are losing money out of FTX, and that's all that they need to do anything that they're going to want to do. The numbers there are so much larger, right? And they have decimal points on what we're talking about with Silvergate that I don't think they need to lean into the banking system to do this. I also think the banking system is the wrong place to approach this. I mean, there's no viable crypto regulation I've seen anywhere that starts at the FDIC. I mean, sure, we talk about CBDCs and stablecoin regulation, and we can get into that. But other than a narrow use case, this is not a banking issue, right? That's why I think this is so ridiculous. Um, I think that we'll be forgetting about Silvergate in about two weeks, and Elizabeth Warren won't be able to remember what it was. Yeah. <laughs> I love this comment from Juicified. Meanwhile, she's screening her questions by sending them to Garen Gesler so he knows what questions she will grill him on. I don't know if you guys saw that a few weeks ago, but her hardline approach to questioning Gary Gensler were softball questions that she had said to them in advance. So, I mean, we know that we're watching Kabuki theater here, right? I mean, yeah. this is all, it's all politics and none of it is real at all. So let's move on from Silvergate. I think we're all in agreement that this is a bank failure and the crypto industry will likely come out the other side very soon and, and be completely fine. Let's talk about uh, Grayscale. Dave, you're my ETF, you're my ETF expert. Yeah, right? uh, good day. Uh, and I haven't yeah, talked day. to you about it. So like they had their good day in court. Uh, the judge heavily questioned the SEC, said, you know, what are your grounds? The futures and spot are effectively the same. If futures is supposed to be following spot then uh, as spot following spot then why wouldn't a spot etf do the yeah. same effectively right what do you make of this do you think that it actually increases the chances that we see a spot etf uh i think this is a good day and i think that's about all it is so so i think we have to work backwards from the end state of let's imagine grayscale gets a, a just a amazing victory in court Everybody sides with them with such a clear definition from this panel of three judges that, that the SEC doesn't even go for appeal. They don't put it on bank. They don't send it to the Supreme Court. They're just like, you're right. You got us. It was capricious and arbitrary. That does not mean that Grayscale then gets to turn this into an ETF, nor does it mean that they then approve a spot Bitcoin ETF the next day. Those things could happen. I would take the under on those in a big way. If, if Grayscale wins, I actually think the most likely outcome is that 
within a you know however much time the courts then give the SEC to remediate their failure, what they end up doing in that 90 or 180 days is simply like passing regulation, which they could do without congressional oversight or anything like that. Just saying, hey, you know what? We, we made a mistake. So we're now going to clarify the regulations and the futures products will go away. I actually think that's a much more likely outcome then all of a sudden we have five Bitcoin. So, so we could lose that. We could lose the futures ETF and have nothing effectively and go back I, I to uh, for people who want access to Bitcoin in their IRA, they can just go ahead and buy GPTC at a 42% discount. Yeah, or just that. not do it at all. Right. And so I think that's actually the bigger fear I have is that the, I, I think this is a very heavy handed way to try to approach the SEC. And Grayscale knows that they've admitted that they didn't do this lightly. Uh, but I do think that the end result of them winning is not going to be what folks think it is. I think it's more likely it becomes effectively pocket regulation against the entire ecosystem. And and those pro the existing products would have like BITO would have to get shut down because the SEC would say, here's a new set of rules. Here's what we're defining as acceptable. These products are now out of bounds. They have to unwind in a certain amount of time. It's not unprecedented. The SEC has passed regulations before that have just dissolved whole classes of things, portfolio insurance, you name it. I mean, there's all sorts of products that get taken off shelves because the rules change. That I think is more likely than a blanket. Hey, everybody, we can just be like Canada and we can put up a US version of BTCC and we're done. Yeah, I think the market is getting ahead of itself um, definitely a bit, which, you know, in crypto happens quite often. I'm seeing here like GBTC is up 15% while Bitcoin is down about 8% this week. Uh, and that to me, you know, some people, of course, are pricing in a higher chance that it'll turn into an ETF. But it's also part of, you know, the animal spirit still in crypto uh, going around and seeing what's the next bet that they can get a high payoff. So they're like, oh, 35% discount, it can still go all the way to zero. Uh, and, you know, we're seeing a lot of that type of speculation uh, in, in liquid tokens, you know, like stacks or before that aptos getting massive spikes. So it's, it's, uh, it seems very speculative to me rather than, you know, um, the market actually betting on, on this turning into an ETF. Uh, yeah, I agree. It, it doesn't seem to still be a clear path forward for the ETF. Um, it would be great to have more avenues for capital to flow in so that we don't have this tidal wave of excitement for folks that couldn't access and can suddenly access. Um, it might not be a bad time to start opening some of those doors where the demand is low, as opposed to while the floodgates are open, ripping off a bandaid then. Uh, but it still it doesn't seem there's a, a, a near-term path for, for a, a spot ETF, although I'd love to see one. Damn it, Dave. You just... <laughs> I, I hadn't really, I, I really hadn't thought of it that way. So here's, here's well, let, let, my let's thinking. Just, Go let ahead, me just back please. up one second. Like no judge can make a regulator do a thing. That and, I understand. Right. So the judge, no judge, the, like the Supreme Court cannot tell the SEC to approve a product. They can say that certain rules or laws or guidelines were misapplied or are unconstitutional or something like that, but they can't narrowly decide a specific action proactively that a regulator needs to take. It just doesn't work that way. So the, the, you have to imagine one of two outcomes, either the SEC wins, in which case this never happens, or the SEC loses, in which case they backdoor this by just clarifying a bunch of rules. That clarification is not going to go our way. I, I don't understand why everybody thinks that all of a sudden <laughs> means it's going to go our way.
Right. So basically, right. This is, was my take and from talking to quite a few people over the past few days on this show and spaces and such was that even if Grayscale has this rousing victory, as you said, it's really just saying that the premise that the SEC had has been, you know, disallowed, but they can just come back with any other premise they want. I didn't really take it a step further and say that we might lose the futures ETF as a result, but that does make sense. My more optimistic view is that Grayscale would win, and then the SEC would kick them to the back of the line, frankly, right? And, and take the next one that's up and reevaluate it on different grounds. And that we would be more likely actually to see somebody else get an ETF approved 100%. than Grayscale, especially with what's going on with DCG. The, like, the I, key, I can't see Gary is- Gensler like excitingly throwing, and I'm not saying that the baby should be thrown out with the bathwater. I'm not saying Grayscale is complicit in anything happening with the Genesis bankruptcy, but I'm saying there's a perception there that I'm assuming after being burned by FSBF, Gensler's not trying to align with, yeah, with Grayscale. A really critical thing on the spot Bitcoin ETF thing too is that there's a huge difference between some of the clean filings, like Vanak and Valkyrie had some really clean filings for a Bitcoin spot ETF that would be very easy to approve, no hair on them whatsoever. Those, to your point, if those things are at the front of the line and they decide that they're going to say yes, those things go out the gate first. What they're trying to do by converting GBTC off the pink sheets has hair all over it. Even if they were trying to do this on an S&P 500 fund that happened to be trading on the pink sheets, that has hair on it. They're never going to lead with that. They would approve something extremely clean like they did with GLB a million years ago and then let people build off that. So, I, I, you know, the fairest thing to do would be to set a starting gun date and say, like, OK, on June 1st, everybody can get these things trading. They never actually do that, even though everybody knows that's what they should do. Yeah, I mean, it feels to me like there's literally zero chance we get any ETF with Gensler, period. I, I, I'd take that bet. Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah, I, I think that we're not getting definitely not getting much clarity, even on the lawmaking, it's probably not likely to see material lawmaking done in this congressional session, uh, imply cooperation in order to get the laws through. So it's likely that we're two years out before we start to get have a chance to get meaningful uh, lawmaking and uh, rules outside of just regulation. Do, do any of you think of this is really an election issue? I mean, I'm, I know I'm fired up about it. I know all y'all are fired up about echo it. Echo chamber. That's an echo chamber narrative. Lean in on this? Well, uh, well let, me, let me explain one point, point to you, though. Um, Senate at the Ag Committee versus the Financial Services Committee. Both of those are vi- both of those have independent oversight. So they oversee the SEC versus the CFTC. Mm-hmm. Why do they want the territory of regulating these spaces? It's future donors. They get a whole entire industry. If the SEC ends up taking their jurisdiction, there's an entire donor base for that uh, set of congressional leaders. Same with the CFTC. Uh, we're just not seeing that anyone willing to give up that potential power. And in both instances, they have to figure out how they're going to give spot authority over those each agency, which doesn't currently have spot authority. From the donor standpoint, that makes a bit more sense, but I don't buy the people are saying like, oh, there are 100 million people who own crypto, which already sounds There's 12 like, of us. Four of yeah. us are here. There's 12 <laughs> other ones. <laughs> yeah. But you I've, guys own crypto, right? I've seen that in, in Twitter. And, and I don't buy that people will be that passionate about voting just for the pro-crypto candidate. You know, maybe the people tuning mm-hmm. into this, but definitely not the wider uh, amount of holders. 
I think there are tens of thousands of people who are extremely passionate yeah. and aggressive about this. And I think that that's totally fine. But I, I think maybe in a few jurisdictions and a few races, there might be someone who's swayed by a crypto argument. But in general, I think that's an echo chamber narrative mm-hmm. because we're so passionate about it and we live and breathe it every single day that we think that's going to happen. But I, I tend to agree with you. But I wanted to touch on something you guys we were just talking about. Uh, the Agriculture Committee, obviously, James, right? That's the CFTC versus the financial side being being uh, the SEC deeming everything securities. Well, we did just have this piece of news that was coming through and being talked about yesterday. What the CFTC chairman is saying very clearly that Ether and stablecoin are commodities, while Gary Gensler is over on his side saying literally anything not named Bitcoin is a security, Right. So, I mean, what do you make uh, of the fact that we're still seeing this sort of power struggle between the two regulators? Does that mean that we effectively can't get anything done because our regulators can't even agree? Do we need our own regulator? I mean, I think we all agree that ETH and stablecoins are commodities and not securities. Can we start there, maybe? This boils down to the lawmakers. I agree with you. It's not a campaign winning issue. But whoever, whichever committee ends up gaining the authority to rule the space is the one that's going to drive it. And if you look at the two proposals, the SEC is doing a lot more around, um, say, rulemaking by enforcement, where the CFTC is, have been sort of somewhat quiet on this. Uh, they have a proposal around more collaboration between the agencies, but we're still not getting much clarity out of Washington over who's going to be the ultimate, uh, which, which is the ultimate direction we're having. And with the CFTC going into stablecoins, it starts to get into banking area again. So now we're seeing really interesting tug of war over who is ultimately responsible. Yeah, I, I'm I'm not a big fan of the theory that the CFTC should be, it's the, it's the natural regulator of stable coins. Uh, that one doesn't make a lot of sense to me. We have really I, I don't good think rules. It, I don't think stable coins are a security or a commodity. They're money market funds. Like, I mean, let's, yeah. let's just call them what they are. Like we could just change the money market fund rules and those things could actually live pretty cleanly. They're, they're not that complicated. Um, and I've always thought that's where we should start because it's the simplest thing in crypto. I can explain the stable coin to anybody who's ever bought a fund of any kind. It's so straightforward, but it doesn't belong at the CFTC. If it belongs anywhere, it probably belongs over with money market funds. But to your point, James, like this doesn't get resolved without law. I don't think I don't think that all of a sudden the CFTC starts playing nice with the SEC. They never really have. They have very different mandates. They literally have different jobs, different sets of constituents. Um, And the CFTC has always done things much more in the favor of the industries it serves, whether that's farmers or whether that's, you know, ag producers or whether that's folks who are just buying a lot of corn to make ethanol. It doesn't matter. They've always been very pro-industry because that's their point. They, They came out of existence to support the agriculture industry. That's why they exist. So... I get why we get more interesting action out of the CFTC, but I think it's a losing argument to say, well, if there's a natural regulator here, it's going to have to be a law. And by, for me, that means we're not going to see anything on this for three years. Yeah. And, and that gives the authority to regulate spot markets to, a, to, to yep. either agency that doesn't currently regulate spot markets. Yep. Yeah. And so you touched on something I didn't intend to talk about, but stable coins are money market funds, right? And so we've seen a grand move by most stablecoin providers, Tether most namely, to into short-term treasuries and cash to make sure that they're fully backed. So a lot of the fun about commercial paper and the way that they were backed has seemingly disappeared. But isn't that just about timing like Silvergate? 
what if they were all in short-term treasuries from a year ago rather than today? And I am not a tether futter. I believe in, in stable coins. But playing devil's advocate, if everything's backed by treasuries that, in theory, if rates go shooting up, could not be liquidated without a massive discount, are stable coins actually a problem? And in that regard, I don't know, maybe they are security. I mean, part of the reason we have the money market fund rules is because they do things like limit your exposure to duration, right? I mean, the things that money market funds are allowed to own is very small and very short duration and has gotten shorter and smaller over the years, right? It has become a more and more regulated industry to the point where you don't actually make any money in your money market fund anymore. It's effectively just a cash vehicle that gets CIPIC insurance as opposed to FDIC insurance. That's the reason people use them um, is because they're a way of storing money that gives you a little bit better insurance than an excessive bank deposit. So it, it's a natural place to live. Um, I actually think that stable coins are also interesting because they're one of the best bridge assets. Like for somebody who's trying to come in from a TradFi world, it's the easiest thing to do. Just say, hey, you've got $100,000 in cash. Just put it in a stable coin. You'll get your wallet set up. You'll learn how the ecosystem works. You don't have any exposure to all these crazy assets. You don't know how they work. You're just putting it in cash in a different place. I know a lot of financial advisors really leaned into stable coins and then subsequent sort of cash management products that were available over the last couple of years. It's such a natural on-ramp. I don't understand why we don't spend more time talking about that and less time talking about Bitcoin, honestly. It was interesting when there was interest on it. That's where we saw a lot of a lot of folks drive into it, which hindsight definitely didn't look as good <laughs> as as, uh, as it could have done. Uh, but I think, Scott, you're making a bit of an argument that's interesting because it, it leans it closer to like OCC bank style regulation, which uh, puts it further away from CFTC to the original kind of starting topic of this conversation. Yeah. And, and I think at the end of the day, we might see, you know, some implications on the industry, depending on where these stable coins are, um, you know, registered, um, like, uh, a month or you know a few weeks ago when the Paxos news came to light of that might being uh, a security uh, we actually saw in, in DeFi a lot of people withdrew um, from the curve three pool which is one of the largest DeFi uh, pools for stable coins uh, people were withdrawing USDC and USDT there were a lot of swapping for USDT so people were beginning to prefer USDT because it's you know internationally uh, settled so that's that's something interesting that could be, you know, a secondary effect. If we see stablecoin crackdown locally, it might actually benefit Tether, which is something, you know, a lot of people weren't expecting at the beginning of the year. Now that we're going down this road, what do you make of the fact that the regulator attacked Paxos, but specifically over BUSD without mentioning USDP, which is Paxos's own stablecoin? I will go out on a limb and say attack against Binance, like openly and not against stable coins, but maybe I'm uh, wearing a tin hat and sipping the Kool-Aid. It's hard to jump inside of the mind of a regulator, but it, um, it is easy to make that leap that it was targeted against a specific entity. Yeah, uh, I mean, for sure, for sure. They're not going after the security, they're going after the entities. Yeah. I agree. And that's the first thing I thought. One thing that I saw that kind of changed my mind that it might not be the same uh, is that part of the BUSD uh, revenues from, um, you know, the, the bonds uh, were apparently being used to burn uh, BNB. And someone fact checked me on this, but I'm, I'm pretty sure it was a, 
a good source for this, um, which you know does drive value back to BNB and has that expectation of profit clause, uh, the infamous one. So in, in that sense, it's like you know it seems a bit of a stretch, uh, but there can be potentially an argument, and I think that's the same argument they had with USD, UST and Terra, that, right. you know that they had to burn Luna. So it's kind right, of to me, that's just how do you differentiate between the asset that's being minted by Paxos? Because they went over to Paxos, right? I think that there's a very good argument that once BUSD left Paxos and went into the Binance ecosystem, there were some shady, I, won't, I don't even know shady, but some interesting things that were happening, the way they were wrapping it, moving it around, and potentially utilizing it. But to me, that has nothing to do with Paxos. That has to, that would have to be an international regulator going after Binance for something that they they saw. Yeah, I think a, a, an important thing to remember here is that for a lot of TradFi regulators, you know, guys my age and women my age who are sitting in these places, they're trying to figure out what hooks that they're used to using they can apply. And the big one I've heard over and over again is issuer. Like so much of securities law globally, not just in the US, is about who the issuer of a security is. The problem with so many token systems is that it's really becomes very impossible after they're initially launched to say who is the issuer anymore, because it doesn't happen in a traditional sort of closed treasury environment where new securities get approved and then some treasurer signs a thing and now you can buy 100,000 more shares or another tranche of bonds or something like that. The very nature of the way token economics work sort of means the issuer disappears once the dang thing is launched out of the gate. And that, I think, has given a lot of regulators significant anxiety because what they really want to know is who's who's on the hook. And with so much of crypto, the answer is, well, kind of nobody and or everybody. Yeah, so I want to just piggybacking on the Binance concept, because now it's on the top of my mind as a Voyager creditor. We obviously saw the SEC step in aggressively uh, to attempt, they failed, to stop the buyout of Voyager by Binance US. Didn't really step in when FTX, that was literally a fraud, attempted to buy Voyager but stepped in and said, we don't like Binance. We don't have the evidence that they have the money to do this. They may be now, this one killed me. Like this is going to be a transfer from Voyager to Binance of unregulated securities, which if that's the implication means nobody could bail out Voyager ever, right? Because at some point those assets have to move. So that lends a little more credence to me that there's sort of just a general vibe from the SEC that they want to go after Binance. That's one thing. But circling back to Grayscale and the judge speaking somewhat in favor of the crypto industry, or at least saying that the SEC is out of bounds here, the judge in the Voyager case went extremely hard against the SEC. I mean, here's one quote. I have no idea how long I can do nothing and wait until Congress and the competing regulatory authorities sort out amongst themselves just who has what authority over what aspects of this what kind of authority? I have no idea how long that's going to take, and we can't do that in bankruptcy. We can't just put everything on pause just because we don't know for sure how the regulators will eventually make up their minds on points that they seem to have been debating for years. Isn't this so obvious? I mean, that that that's I was so happy shit. to read all that. There, there was so much more than that, and I would love to like dig up every quote and say it. But isn't it so? And this goes back even to the Kraken uh, staking as a service, right? That. The issue is not whether that was a security. 
That can be debated all day. The issue, as Hester Peirce and Jesse Powell point out, is that there was no way to get registered as a security. There was no clarity on to how to do that. And that's basically what the judge is saying. They're making all these outrageous claims, but there's no way for anyone to become compliant because there's no rules. So is this... It, this is a strong reminder. I'm sorry to go on my soapbox when I have uh, three amazing guests here, but isn't this a reminder that people should remember that just because Gary Gensler says everything's a security or just because a regulator has an opinion, it still has to be codified in law, right? Yeah, or at least, the, or at least litigated through the courts, right? Somebody at least has to make an opinion that that has the force of law behind it. And we've seen just tons of this sort of capricious regulation in the last, frankly, 10 years, uh, re both regulation and deregulation, stroke of a pen, change the rules on people and then expect them to have complied with where you ended up. And that's really why I liked what the judge there was saying was because the, the core of it was give us a rule, then we as a court can tell you whether or not it was a good rule, a bad rule, whether they followed it or whether they didn't. But you don't get to come in and say, but we're going to have rules that would make this bad. So I'm hoping that the, the judge there like effectively kick the SEC out of the case. I, didn't, I don't think legally, but I, from what I can tell, it's just going to let this be a normal bankruptcy proceeding now and let those things get resolved in the benefits of the creditors like those things are supposed to do. Right. Uh, you get uh, Lucas, James, either of you have a, a take on that? It's okay not to. No. <laughs> yeah, I mean, at this point, no, not more than I don't want to talk about the SEC anymore. Yeah, I got it. <laughs> yeah, I know. They're getting a little old. They're coming, uh, all four of us get a knock on our door at the exact same time. Um, but, and, and interestingly in here, you guys were speaking about the fact before that you don't think we'll see legislation anytime soon, along with any clear regulation. This judge pointed to that as well and mentioned Congress here. But interestingly, next month, the Lummis Gillibrand bill is coming back. And I've been sort of critical of the fact that we heard about it last summer. We were excited and it seemingly disappeared didn't hear anything about it. Nobody moved. Well, apparently it's coming back a lot leaner and meaner, more direct on the low-hanging fruit, the things that they think they can get done. I mean, listen, Lemus is a Wyoming Republican and Gillibrand is a New York Democrat, right? This has bipartisan support, but is this yet again just a, uh, no way. I mean, you guys think there's any chance? I think there's almost no chance. Maybe we get some like stablecoin laws and maybe we get like, $400 transactions and lower are not taxable on crypto. I think we could get something like that. I mean, it'd be nice if they just, even if it's a small incremental adjustment, but I don't see meaningful change yet happening. I mean, the, the, I mean, I'm not the deepest expert on the bill that was written, but my recollection was the key thing was it was pushing it all towards the CFTC, which I think is, is a generally well understood and accepted path for most of us who are crypto enthusiasts here that like we can at least see the future if that would happen. I mean, it would be it would be miraculous to me to see something even a, even a super clean bill, a three sentence bill, which we've seen before saying jurisdiction on digital assets was reverted to the CFTC. That's the entire bill. And it could be that simple. I'm not actually sure it even gets to the floor in this. Conference. Oh, that said it would <laughs> that would be outright rejected in the Senate in the Senate, I'm sure, unfortunately. Yeah. I could see it I, passing the House, but it's starting at the Senate, so it's, that's yeah, irrelevant. because people will try to find a reason to fight about it, and that's just because of the political culture we're in. I actually think behind closed doors, you'd get a lot of people, way more than you would need the votes for, to sort of say, yeah, this makes a lot of sense. But then once it gets down on the floor, you're trying to score a political point against an opponent in an unrelated field. 
that's politics right now. And, and securities regulation writ large, much less crypto and innovation securities regulation, just doesn't have a horse in that race. They're just not part of the political argument. So it only gets bolted on to somebody else's argument. Yeah. I think it's the politics same. Politics. Yeah, go ahead, Lucas. Yeah, yeah, the same theme we're seeing all across that, unfortunately, we're still, you know, waiting on a lot of regulatory clarity. And that's why I'm, I'm not focusing as much as my attention personally there as I see more progress in other parts of the industry, which, you know, right now, at least they can uh, play their way without that much regulatory scrutiny. Um, and I think it's frankly where I see more growth coming in near term than institutional capital. I think we're reversing the trends from like 2021 and now being more retail focused and um, smaller players uh, taking the lead again uh, as you know they can potentially escape that regulatory trouble. Okay, let's do that. That's the silver lining. Let's let's be positive here. We've got 13 <laughs> minutes left. Let's talk about the things that are actually happening that are positive. And if we're going to have to pivot away from looking at uh, regulation and legislation, and those are not going to happen anytime soon, what is still being built regardless of that? Lucas, I mean, you're looking at on-chain data, right, to support whatever you have. So maybe we go right back to you and start there. What evidence do you have that that is happening? What is retail interested in? And what are sort of the positives of what you just described? Yeah, I'll say that there's more focus on DeFi. Um, new users are increasing, though not dramatically so. Uh, but I'm, I'm very optimistic on things like Uniswap launching a wallet, uh, that vertical integration where ideally it'll make it easier for new users to be onboarded into DeFi. Uh, and not have to uh, depend on things like Silvergate for banking, but more, you know, in the spot, smaller amounts of capital, of course, can enter it uh, this way. Um, but I see it as a potential next leg of growth. Also, like liquid staking derivatives, which, you know, just a few years ago were some startups with less than 10 people, those that now have tens of billions in capital accrued, and they're becoming a core part of crypto. Uh, so I'm seeing. Uh, at least some of the seeds being planted for further growth in DeFi. Um, ideally, it'll be matched with more seamless um, onboarding and account abstraction, at which just got implemented, which should make it a lot easier as well. Um, so yeah, in, in, in spite of the regulatory scrutiny, I think uh, we're still planting the seeds for crypto to continue to grow. It's, it's interesting because every time we have a cycle, third cycle now, uh, we leave behind these very interesting building blocks uh, of the puzzle. And in the beginning, it was more focused around on-ramps and getting those stood up. And we had some ICO excitement, the NFT, the Web3. We're starting to get a lot of these Lego blocks that you can build on top of. Uh, I have a very financial services view. Uh, and what we see is much more at the access points and the on-ramps are becoming much more stabilized and sophisticated. Uh, the access and connectivity to DeFi is starting to become potentially viable for financial services. We're still not there yet. Uh, there is definitely a drive and an incentive to have those DeFi service platforms become more stable and robust. I mean, if you look at like Uniswap and some of the other ones, they did pretty well throughout this last kind of craze and while centralized service providers struggled. So that's pretty optimistic for us. Um, we're also just 
we're starting to see how people are stitching together these interesting building blocks, whether it's through the Web3 world, through the, the spot world, the DeFi world. Uh, the other, I'd say the last piece that's been a bit of a story, but coming in really in a big way is the derivative side. Uh, if you look at Coinbase, their futures offering, Kraken, their futures offering, they're cultivating a new wave of futures traders that first got first had exposure to trading through spot Bitcoin or other spot app products. And now we're starting to get into futures and it's creating a real challenge for CME and others that are used to having this core model. And that's going to shift a lot of the way the futures markets and the derivatives markets work in the US and it should drive out some costs, which is pretty exciting. Uh, so I think overall good for the consumer, a lot of the pieces that are happening as a result of the crypto space in the financial services. And I'm also pretty excited about the different innovations that are happening around uh, the building blocks that have been left behind. I'll, I'll give you a completely left field answer on this. I think my biggest concern thinking about the whole world as you know, all markets is institutional decay, whether that's the banking system, which we're seeing right many examples of us today, uh, or governments or uh, academics or you name it. And one of the biggest things to come out of the last round of crypto innovation was DAOs. I think the passage of the Utah DAO Act, which was like a week ago or something like that, um, you know, sort of following on the, the heels of what's going on in Wyoming and several countries that have done that. Those things to me are really interesting. I mean, I know it's it tends to get much less big headlines, but like the fact that a bunch of people are putting a bunch of money in a DAO to go buy a golf course in Scotland is actually really cool. And we should pay more attention to the fact that that's really cool because that's just using the rails we built for DeFi in a different way. And I think those things I'm I want to like celebrate and push more of that stuff out there because that's taking those building blocks names you were talking about and doing really innovative, interesting things that cross that bridge into the physical world. That to me is where we can probably do a lot of work before regulators pay much attention to it. We can start doing that stuff at the state level. And in the U.S., at least, if you can start codifying stuff like this at the state level with real money, real organizations and real constituents, that tends to move the needle at the federal level eventually. I mean, just look at cannabis. I think it's the best example of that. You start doing stuff in a structured, formal, legal, old school, boring, wearing ties way, state by state, and all of a sudden you can't stop it anymore. So I'm really encouraged by what we're seeing in DAOs at the state level. Lucas, it's interesting you said that we're seeing new people come into DeFi. I would take a win in crypto as a win, and I don't mean this as a joke, anywhere that we're not losing people, right? So the fact that it's not even just flat and we're actually seeing new users come in, even if that's minimal, I think that's a huge, and I think that would be true of any market. I think that all markets, people have their question marks and generally are exiting and slowly. So is this on all protocols? Are you seeing it in a specific place? Is this, you know, uh, primarily on Ethereum? What are you actually seeing as sort of this rise of DeFi? Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll put an asterisk there, mean that it's new addresses, which, you know, potentially could be the same person. Unfortunately, we can't differentiate, but we're seeing new addresses at least, uh, which there's little purpose to having multiple addresses for existing protocols um, in like Uniswap, uh, Aave, Euler, um, Blur, of course, as well. Um, so we're seeing renewed interest at a smaller scale of course than like you know peak hype um but we're seeing new addresses interact with protocols uh test new features and at the same time we're seeing some innovation uh from these protocols launching new features uh, and new types of services as well 
So uh, the activity in total is less than it was, but at least we're bringing in new people, it seems. Um, <clears throat> again, uh, asterisk that it's an address, but uh, given that those already have tokens in, uh, by and large, there doesn't make too much sense. They're gonna be harming airdrops. So I do see some positive uh, growth there. Uh, still in the thousands, hundreds of thousands at most, I think Uniswap has the largest uh, and open sea in terms of users. Um, but it's promising science and with uh, account abstraction and more wallets becoming easier to integrate, I'm optimistic in, in further growth there. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Um, I just said we have to figure out a way to get to the next billion. What are we going to do to get to a billion users mm -hmm. in this? And uh, I am a trade, let's say, junkie. And it's not going to come through trading, in my opinion. It's going to come through something like uh, Web3 or the NFT side. Like, look at what Nike's doing with their products between digital and physical. That stuff is much more comprehensible for every person. And I think that's where we do get a larger swath of users. Um, it's not necessarily going to drive a ton of participation in like Bitcoin or ETH holding uh, potentially, but it's it's where we bring in the participants and they start to interact with the upper layers of these technologies. Uh, and that's where things get really exciting about how the space can move. And that comes from a trader who's at a trading uh, company who's running the crypto side of that trading company. Oh, man, uh, are you going to get in trouble? But but it's we need, it's we need one billion traders to. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I think still that stable coins are going just circling back. That could just continue to be the killer app that brings in all those people. I mean, if you live in somewhere with hyperinflation and no access to dollars, as much as I would love to say, go buy Bitcoin and whatever. People want stable coins. They want dollars. Well, and, right. and honestly, I think we're headed towards a world where people are going to start moving money into a stable coin that's sitting in a wallet somewhere. Pretty soon, they're then going to be able to go buy a 20-year treasury fund on a token basis if they want to. Now, whether that happens in a broad, open ecosystem like we have now, or whether you have to be in a secure chain, lots of arguments around that, lots of regulation around that. But the industry's pushing that way. I mean, folks like Wisdom Tree and Franklin Templeton, they're all trying to lean in and figure out how to get all this old school stuff on chain somehow, on somebody's chain somehow. Uh, and I think that we're, we're going to get there. And to, to James's point, I think it's those real consumer applications that aren't intra-ecosystem. They're, you know, oh, I bought sneakers or, oh, I want membership in this museum or, oh, I want to go play this golf course in Scotland and I can go buy a piece of it. Those start becoming real consumer connections. And that, I think, is ultimately where the next billion comes from. I saw some story in passing today, and now I'm going to misquote it, but something with Planet Hollywood and Animoca Brands opening an NFT it. club in L.A. Anybody it. see this? I Am I making this up? Uh, yeah, I got to look it up. Uh, Planet Ali, I mean, so I just want the the point is that this, yeah, I'm, I'm not lying. This is on business wise. Yeah, no, I see it right I, now. Yeah, here you go. See, guys, we're, I don't, I don't have a plan here. Just making it up. Animoca Brands, a plan to Hollywood to launch Club Three, a physical private club with exclusive perks and experiential programming for Web Three community. Planet Hollywood. Who would have thought we could get a Hard Rock Cafe in the metaverse next? <laughs> but uh, to your point, though, that I mean, this is really happening. Whether it succeeds or not, I don't know. But people are putting real capital and effort behind this. Yeah, yeah uh, I think that the, we have um, the downside of some of this, that, not to end on a negative note, the, the capital, investment capital, was flowing heavily into the space from a VC driving innovation. 
and it's starting to find other areas out. AI. GPT and AI <laughs> has just lit everybody exciting. Some, several folks were crypto, were NFTs, now they're AI. It's, a, it's an interesting transition. Um, but it, the money flowing into these spaces is still going to be a big driver of where the innovation comes from. We still are on likely to see consolidation. Uh, we've had a lot of experimentation in these projects, and it's going to be some good consolidation, some good survivors. And uh, I'm excited to see what comes up the other side of this. For sure. And, and Alad, uh, last thing, we're, I think we're seeing different players. So perhaps there's less VC money, perhaps not there is. Uh, entering crypto, uh, but now we see brand interest remain, you know, incredibly resilient. That that's just the latest example. The Starbucks one, Reddit, those are you know uh, better examples. We'll see if Meta eventually actually integrates Instagram NFTs as they've been testing. <clears throat> so I I think that'll just bring again that retail crowd further back into crypto, while institutional you know remains in a bit of a uh, more difficult position and, and in a way brings more of a grassroots interest into crypto, which I'm uh, excited for. Yeah, I mean, Dave, did, did we get, yeah, go ahead, Dave. I was just, just going to say, did we kind of get what we wanted with, didn't we sort of get what we uh, wished for, unfortunately, with the institutional involvement in crypto anyways? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <Anyway>. I, <laughs> yeah I, I do think that this shakedown period, as painful as it is, is ultimately very needed and very important. Nice. And we've seen this in every piece of innovation in financial markets when ETFs launched. Uh, you know, various insurance industries, derivatives. There's always these periods of sort of overexpansion and then contraction. I think NFTs are a really interesting one because none of the regulatory proposals really touch NFTs. So I'm really curious to see how that evolves because that's going to be a little bit of a, a wild west, I think, for the foreseeable future because even the Gilbrandt bill puts NFTs off to the side. Yeah. Absolutely. Guys, we're against time. Unfortunately, a really awesome conversation. Uh, wish I could do it for a lot more hours, but this is when I go record podcasts, so I can't. Um, although I think I have one other thing before that. So everyone, please follow. They're in the description. Lucas uh, into the block. Dave from Vetify. James Putra from Trade Station. All three of my favorite uh, incredible resources who you'll see back on the show quite often. I will be back again tomorrow on Fridays. I rant about the news of the week and generally lose my mind. So you can tune in for that if that sort of thing appeals to you. And then I'm actually going to be largely off next week because of my kids' spring break. So get it while it's hot. Dave, James, Lucas, thank you guys very much. Always a pleasure and an honor. Great. Everybody Thanks, guys. Thank you so much. Food day, guys. See you guys later.